0: Coming from Palm Beach County, Florida, growing up under the legal Jim Crow system there, for me it was a driver, and I knew as a very young person, if I could ever help people, that's what I would do.
1: Welcome to Pod County. We've got a great guest on this episode, uh, Penrose Hollins, one of the longest serving, I guess the current longest serving member of the Newcastle County Council, but beyond that, uh, a member of The Wilmington City Council at one point, an influential member in the party, the Democratic Party in Delaware, bringing changes to how the state did elections in the 1980s, moving us from the caucus system to the primary system, member of Jesse Jackson's campaign team here in Delaware, just really, really big in a human rights focus in the 80s, and a great personal story. He grew up in the Jim Crow South in Florida, and and got out of that, and joined the army, served in Korea on a hardship tour. Just really, really interesting life, and you can see how that's impacted him, and and how it's impacted his work as elected official here in Delaware, and and the things he's tried to change. So sit back and enjoy this great storytelling moment with uh, with Penrose Island. All right. Councilman Penrose-Hollins, welcome to Pod County. I didn't tell you the name of it, but it's called Pod County. That's, right. the, that's the name of the podcast. What we want to talk to you today about is just wh- how, how you got here, wh- why you've been here so long. Because well, 1980, that was your first campaign, but it wasn't your first county council campaign,
0: right? No, that was uh, a campaign for the Wilmington City Council. That was my first uh, campaign. Uh, that was my introduction to the Delaware political scene.
1: So you you've at least had an interest to the level of wanting to run uh, for 38 years. So that I think we really want to dig into and what would bring you to want to do that to subject yourself to that, because certainly uh, politics is is it hasn't it has certainly hasn't gotten easier over the last 38 years. But really, I, so a lot of this came out of your your speech at your swearing-in ceremony. I listened to that speech, I I heard someone who had what had to be an interesting story um, because you've not only been in it so long, but you came here from Florida. I know uh, you had military service in your background. Uh, I really want to know more about you, so, you know, you started in Palm Beach County, Florida. How old were you when you came here, and and why did you come to Delaware?
0: I came to Delaware after military service. um, Primarily um, looking for greater opportunities, and I was offered a job here in Delaware. I uh, came to Delaware, I worked first for what was then Atlas Chemical Industries. Uh, I worked there for the first couple of years I was in Delaware, and then I had a job opportunity to move over to DuPont, and I uh, went to work for DuPont uh, as a lab technician. So I stayed there for 31 years at the DuPont Experimental Station as a research technician.
1: So how old were you when you came to Delaware?
0: When I came to Delaware, I was 26 years old. Twenty-six. Yes, and um, working at DuPont, uh, I got more interested in civic engagement. Um, At that time, there was the Black DuPont Employees Association. Uh, They were really very interested in uh, having uh, black DuPont employees uh, more engaged with the civic community as well as greater opportunities in the DuPont Company. At that time, um, not just DuPont, but across the country, it was challenging for a lot of black folk who were entering to the industries uh, for the first time. Uh, The federal government was involved. The federal government was putting such mandates on industries such as DuPont to be more inclusive, and I came in along that time. And so, it was a matter of bonding and supporting each other uh, at DuPont and Hercules and other industries around Delaware, uh, the black employees coming from a lot of diff- different jurisdictions coming here to work uh, for the industries here. And they still found themselves having to bond with each other uh, for housing, for uh, social needs, and those kinds of things. So mm-hmm. it was at that age of development. So I got in involved with that, and that led to social engagement. The social engagement sort of elevated uh, me into seeking a term on the Wilmington City Council. Because of what I saw at the time, I thought still existed uh, in the government uh, was uh, inequities uh, and social justice. So my primary reason for running for the Wilmington City Council was to address social injustices. There were two incidents that I witnessed uh, in the late 1970s. One of the issues was um, a young man being shot and killed in Wilmington on West 30th Street by Wilmington police and Wilmington police um, in their defense said that they thought the young man was armed. Uh, It's pretty much of what I see today with so many, in my opinion, people not getting equal justice when they were being shot by police. In this instance, uh, it was a young man by the name of Fuzzy Governs. And most people in Wilmington know who Fuzzy was. Uh, you would see him walking, uh, not really disturbing the peace or bothering anybody. Just someone that was on the street had some challenges, and he was shot and killed by Wilmington police. And that bothered me, and I felt that um, Fuzzy did not receive the justice that he was due. And the other incident shortly uh, was uh, a young girl who was shot and killed. Uh, she was shot in the back uh, as she was um, taking fruit from a tree on West 35th Street uh, from a home that was being repaired. And the homeowner that was doing the repair work before moving in, happened to come to the residence and notice the young girl picking fruit from the tree, he chased the young girl over to Washington Street. And he shot her in the back because she was picking fruit from the tree from a vacant property that was in the process of being renovated. And so those two incidences really just incentivized me to say something needs to be done, which I felt at the time enough wasn't being done. I didn't have all the answers, but I just thought that I could add my voice uh, in a way that I thought that they were not being represented to the extent that I felt that they should have been.
1: And this, what, what time again did this happen?
0: That was uh, in the 1979 uh, area because the following year I um, became a Wilmington City Council person in 1980. I was completely unknown politically, but uh, I was very well known with my colleagues at DuPont. And they supported me, and we beat an incumbent who had been in office for about 16 years, and we won by 10 votes. That was my introduction to the Delaware political scene.
1: Yeah, 10 votes in, in any era is impressive, um, but I think it has to be probably even more impressive in an era when there wasn't social media, there wasn't, I, I can't imagine, a ton of even then TV coverage on local, local races or newspaper coverage on local, maybe because staffs were larger, but I mean, the ability to engage with voters had to be far more shoe leather, um, you know, boots on the ground effort than it is now, where you can kind of be in this space where you can do a Facebook Live and reach a 1,000 people?
0: Yeah, it it certainly has changed, and we've grown with that. Uh, You're absolutely correct Uh, at that time. We made a conscious decision since I was unknown politically. uh, I had no political associations whatsoever. I did not know the Wilmington Democrat chair as an example, and most what we found later on, most candidates, uh, when they were seeking to run for office at that time— Uh, they sought out the city chairman and sort of gotten the blessings from the city chairman. We came from an opposite direction, not even knowing the city chairperson, but decided to run. And one of the things we did, to your point, uh, there was no really access in terms of um, the types of uh, access we have now. So it was boots on the ground. And what we made a conscious effort to do was to put out as many pieces of literature as we possibly could uh, to make certain that my name was being repetitious to that district. So rather than do two or three pieces with everything we had to say, we put everything I had to say on maybe 10 or 12 pieces. So we kept dropping things at people's doors, not saying very much, but every piece we dropped had my name on it.
1: You said that there were some kind of social issues. And, and you had this experience of, you know, kind of having to come together with your other black employees at DuPont to, to kind of form a community. This is 1980. How far are we removed from the riots? What's the climate like in the city? How far has the city moved on from that, that turmoil?
0: Uh, the city was far beyond the riots at that time, um, so the riots had no real impact uh, on my decision uh, at all. Um, I think that there was ongoing residue because of the riots and folk trying to come back together. Uh, there was communities uh, pretty much decimated because of the riots. Uh, and the other, um, mental anguish uh, as a result of the riots. but. Uh, Not being a native Wilmingtonian, um, I didn't come from the same place as folk who grew up here on the east side of Wilmington, where you hear a lot of folk my age um, grew up on the east side of Wilmington. They're very proud of the east side of Wilmington. Uh, As you mentioned, I grew up in Palm Beach County, Florida. Uh, My experience was somewhat different, but I still think it shaped me and who I am and how I feel about injustice anywhere and so when I noticed um, some of the injustices in Delaware were no different than the injustices that were going on in Palm Beach County, Florida. So I know some of the history in Delaware before I even came here. So I wasn't surprised by it, but I always felt that if I ever had an opportunity to do something about it, that's what I would do. So um, as I mentioned, people run for public office for a lot of different reasons. Uh, I ran to help people and I ran to try to make life better and to be inclusive, and that's what my political career will reflect that uh, in terms of my focus uh, on inclusion, diversity, uh, affordable housing, uh, economic justice, and those types of issues.
1: I know, you know, from working at the News Journal, doing a lot of stories on I-95 and its introduction to the city, obviously before you came in, but I think um, there's been a lot of people who have I kind of identified that as a catalyst to a lot of the division and strife in Wilmington, that it broke communities up, that it split neighborhoods up, that it contributed to a lot of the feeling of disenfranchisement in the the era when the riots occurred, and then, you know, kind of where the city is now, divided mm-hmm. in half. Um, you know, in that time since you ran in 1980, you know, have you seen a, ch- a change in the way these, commu- you know, have these communities come back together? Are they still divided do you think, you know, now in a a kind of a modern age when, you know, maybe technology can bridge some of that physical divide, that there's a way to bring these communities together? Or is it, you know, what do you see? Because you're, you know, you've you've seen it for 38 years, you know, since you first ran, that, you know, can be done to help, you know, bring these communities back together?
0: I think there's an ongoing effort uh, to bring communities back together. Uh, I don't, want to be critical of those folk who are trying. It's not that folk are not trying. It's just more difficult as time goes on. And I mentioned the east side of Wilmington as an example. Um, People who grew up on the east side of Wilmington, they had no options. So they had to live on the east side of Wilmington because there was segregated housing to begin with, uh, which resulted in segregated schools. So uh, Wilmington went through, Delaware went through a whole thing of DSEG. Uh, and that was uh, an issue that was controversial in the black community as well. So everyone didn't like the idea of busing, uh, but it occurred as um, as a remedy to segregated schools. Uh, and it's still an argument on both sides if it worked or not. So the challenges continue to be there. We just have to find new ways to address the challenges. You can't use yesterday's solutions for tomorrow's challenges all the time. So... It means that you've got to continue to think about these issues, and what's happening as time go on, uh, what we're beginning to see, what I observe, is um, I guess Hurricane Katrina was um, an example of where we were at the time when Hurricane Katrina struck New Orleans, uh, when um, the storm came in and there were certain folk who couldn't get out of the city. Most of those people were in a place called the Ninth Ward. Uh, The Ninth Ward was a place where you had a lot of poverty. Uh, When you look at America today, across almost every urban area, you see pockets of poverty where people, if there were a disaster, they would not be able to get out. So what you have are these islands of um, economic distress. Uh, We just experienced um, a housing crisis. bubble. And uh, as a result of that, uh, what you saw is a disproportionate number of um, black and poor people um, losing their homes uh, in unprecedented numbers. As a result of that, you also saw uh, where uh, certain communities in urban America were being purchased by investors. So you have a situation where if you were average person uh, of color, usually, and you're trying to get a bank to approve a mortgage before you can get your approval. An investor has paid cash for the home. So even though there was a community where you would like to live, you couldn't live there. And so you're creating uh, this divide even further. And it's really, um, even though integration uh, gave a lot of opportunity, integration also created other Uh, challenges uh, at one time on the east side of Wilmington, everybody lived together, whether you were the doctor, whether you were the lawyer, uh, the principal, you all lived together, which meant at that time that there were, there was, there was an economy in that community. Um, As a, as a result of integration, um, folk decided to leave the east side of Wilmington. Folk decided to leave Wilmington. Uh, at one time, Wilmington had over 150,000 residents. Now they got about half of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so as people are moving out of certain areas and moving to other places where they prefer to live, it's not just white people who are moving, it's black people as well. And you had a concentration of black people on the east side of Wilmington, and most of those people now live in Bear and other places in Newcastle County. So you have far more black citizens living outside of Wilmington than you have living inside of Wilmington. But when you go back to those days, uh, there was a concentration. Most black people lived in Wilmington, Delaware. That's Mm -hmm. just not the case anymore. You probably have more black people now living in Baird than you have living in Wilmington. And I think that's reflected uh, in this last election where now you're going to see um, the landscape of the Delaware General Assembly is changing dramatically because now where people are living, now you have more opportunities in that respect, but you still have pockets of concentration of poverty uh, throughout Newcastle County, not just the east side of Wilmington. Uh, And so my focus uh, has been to uplift that population, people who are not... um, enjoying um, the so-called American dream, uh, people who, uh, for one reason or another, are not getting opportunities. And I think it's the government's responsibility to do everything that we can to make certain that uh, folk who deserve to own a home, that we don't have uh, impediments in their path. I believe that, uh, as a government, we're no better off than the people that we serve. That means that you have to make an effort to make certain that there are policies in place that is going to provide for those opportunities. And oftentimes these impediments are not necessarily by design. It's just a matter that people, they're, uh, they're not conscious of, of, of a lot of these policies that we're adopting. And they're not conscious of it because they come from a different place mm-hmm. and they don't necessarily have the same experience. So I think... Even from the standpoint of the 13 members of the County Council, I believe coming from different places, different backgrounds, it benefits all of us. So as I mentioned before, if all 13 of us thought alike, then maybe 12 of us need to go home. Even though my background may be different than half of the other Council members, I think that my background is important to drive us to understand the need to make certain that we are helping everybody that we're not serving a few, we're not serving special interests, and we're not s- serving ourselves. It's there to help people, and my political uh, objective is to do just that.
1: You, when you mentioned growing up in Palm Beach County, and, and you said there was a lot of things you saw there that you then saw again here, what, what did you see when you were younger that kind of formed your, that kind of entry-level you know, formation of, of I want to fix things? You know, what, what did you see there and then that you saw here?
0: Segregated housing, that um, was obvious. I grew up, Jim Crow was legal in Palm Beach County, Florida, when I grew up. Mm. So the separation was by law. Sitting on the back of the bus was the law. So when my grandmother and I would go to a bus station in Palm Beach, Florida, we couldn't go inside the dining room to get a sandwich or a drink. We had to go to a window. So there were designated fountains. So, you know, I came from an area where there was fountains saying white and fountains saying colored. You dare not drink from the fountain that said white. So it's those things as a young person that will have an impact on what you know is wrong, even though Jim Crow was the law. You know, humanity tells you that Jim Crow is wrong when you drive by a white school to go to a black school when the black school doesn't have lights on the football field and you have to get permission from the white school to play if you want to have a night game to play on their field. So there's just so many things that puts you in a place that you are a second-class citizen uh, that you are not as good. So for some folk it's devastating and for others like myself it's, it's a motivator to say that, you know, I can do better, I am just as good. And so I'm going to always be sensitive to folk who I feel are being treated as second-class citizens. Uh, Even when I was in the military, I spent um, two hardship tours in South Korea. And I've seen U.S. military soldiers uh, treat South Korean citizens uh, as second-class citizens. Mm -hmm. And it it troubled me to see that Uh, as a freshman Councilman in the city of Wilmington, when Reverend Jesse Jackson uh, ran his campaign for president in 1984 elections, uh, I was selected to to be the chair for Delawareans for Jackson uh, for the reason that uh, I think that some of my work had been recognized beyond the state of Delaware. Uh, I was the second um, elected official in this country to pass legislation opposing apartheid in South Africa. Mm. Uh, because I had read about what was going on and the oppressive racial system of apartheid in South Africa, which had locked up um, Nelson Mandela Mandela for 27 years, thank you, uh, someone who walked from prison to the presidency. But Wilmington, Delaware became the second political jurisdiction in the country to have divestiture legislation, it was called at the time, and um, there were legislators from around the country seeking me out to better understand how I got the Wilmington City Council to adopt this legislation. Mm -hmm. I was in in Massachusetts when Governor Dukakis invited me up for uh, mass divest, as we'll call there. I was invited to the United Nations in New York. Uh, Some of the people I had met on Divest Africa. So it was a very good experience for me, and the Jackson campaign recognized the work that I was doing here, and I became chairman of Jackson's Delawareans for Jackson in 1984. But then I took on the establishment because at that time, uh, Reverend Jesse Jackson uh, was speaking to an issue. That was dear to my heart, and that was one of Delaware being a caucus state. Being a caucus state meant that in Delaware, for the presidential elections, you only had three places to go to vote. There was one in each county and one in the city of Wilmington. So if you lived in Newcastle County and you wanted to participate in the presidential election under the caucus system, you had to go up to Naaman's Road. No matter where you live in Newcastle County, outside of the city of Wilmington, you had to drive to NamUs Road to participate in the caucus.
1: Or if you don't have a car, find some form of public transportation in 1984 to get you there.
0: Right, and if you weren't there, there's no line. They lock they locked you out. So when I chaired the Jackson campaign, the people in Wilmington voted out on, the, uh, out on Lancaster Avenue. It still is today owned by the FOP. That was a designated place if you lived in Wilmington. During that campaign for Reverend Jackson, we actually had lawyers in from Washington, D.C. and from Philadelphia to make certain that the people would not be locked out, that they would keep the polls open until every single person in line had an opportunity to vote. Uh, now, I was engaged with these things, so that didn't make me a very <laughs> lack of a guy with the part of leadership here. So um, we, we did a lot of things then uh, to challenge um, the system. When we had the convention, the party obviously was not endorsing Reverend Jesse Jackson. We were down in Dover for the convention during the caucus and so forth, and we teamed up with some other folk and we pretty much disturbed the 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 operation of of, of the caucus uh, of the convention so my actions at the time were I would say very aggressive mm-hmm. uh, because I just felt that I would do everything in my power, uh, and I didn't really have a better understanding or a greater understanding of the political leadership. I had gotten to know who the people were, but I didn't have a great respect of of how they were operating, so I was challenging every single thing that was going on as a freshman councilman, and uh, as a result, uh, they kicked me out of office, so that was my... my uh, pay, I guess, for disrupting the system. And um, it was only, I guess, about six years later, I decided to run for the um, county council. And so I did have friends, and when I ran for county council back in um, 1990, 1989, took office in 1990, I had the support of uh, most of the Democratic elected officials, including uh, then-Senator Biden and uh, then-Congressman Carper. So um, I think that um, there were folk. even though my first term on on the city council, Mm -hmm. uh, I had done the things that we talked about, but I think that perhaps people saw that my real goal was to find a way to address issues that I thought brought about equality uh, here locally and as well as what was going on in uh, South Africa. And as a matter of fact, when I was defeated, some of the folk uh, were calling me the International Council Councilman, not in a positive way, Sure. But, yeah. but, uh, yeah.
1: Well, I think, you know, hearing you say some of that, it, it sounds very reminiscent of what we're seeing now. I mean, you have this big uprising of, and, and I think a lot of it, people really became disengaged during the 2016 election. Um, you know, they weren't happy with the process. They weren't happy with what they were seeing in the media, and they checked out. And then, of course, we got the president that we have now that is clearly very divisive, I don't think that's a, a controversial thing to say. People <laughs> are certainly divided um, on President Trump. And I think that really spurred a lot of people who had been disengaged or who had mm-hmm. never considered office before to say, you know what, I can't sit back anymore. I can't be on the sidelines. I need to be a part of this. I need to do something. And then you have this, this wave of people who have never held office before now getting elected to Congress, now getting elected to local office. Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez in New that's York great. taking on an incumbent and really speaking to a lot of the things that you've been speaking about in this. And it, so, it, you know, it's interesting to me to hear that, you know, we, we look at this in 2018 as being this, this blue wave and this big push of this grassroots stuff. But it was happening in 1980 and 1984 when you're here in Delaware, you know, trying to get people right. to realize, like, look, if we have business that we're doing with South African, you know, entities and this atrocity is happening, we need to make sure that we're not enabling that. You know, I don't think... I certainly don't think that should be a radical position, but I can understand in 1984 that people were saying, oh, you know, you should be focused on Wilmington, not South Africa. I guess it, it kind of goes to show that time changes, but the politics don't, right? It, there's, it's everything becomes local. You know, if you're, if, you're, if you're a local person and you have too big a focus, they're going to, you know, knock you for that. If you're a national person, and you have too local a focus, maybe they'll knock you for that. Yeah, I don't know. It just kind of, that kind of hit me, that similarity there.
0: There's a similarity, and I I think that um, a lot of what you see today is born of um, the same thing that my ideals were born of years ago. And the thing about being around as long as I've been around is that, you know, you get a lot of new people, and they come with these new ideas. At least they think they're new. Uh, And so you have to allow them to live through what they believe is new and sort of nurture them and, you know, not, you know, be disparaging to someone who says, you know, they're going to try something that I tried, you know, 20 years ago. Uh, But that's the evolving of it, and as I mentioned, uh, it's just a matter of challenges, um, things changing, and sometimes it's not really deliberate. And one of the um, pieces of legislation that uh, I actually uh, sponsored uh, a couple of years ago, well, not quite a couple of years ago, maybe a year and a half ago, uh, had to do with something called the Responsible Contractor Legislation, and something that I actually voted for. Uh, only to find out that this legislation uh, was an impediment to local business and especially Mm -hmm. uh, small businesses and minority-owned businesses. So when Newcastle County built a $34 million library on Route 9 and we were getting all of the data, uh, what we were recognizing is that most of the payroll for that project was going to New Jersey. Mm. So, and as we were continuing to monitor that project, uh, we recognized that more and more on every single report that we received that, you know, most of our construction dollars for that project is going out of state. It was the reverse of what we had experienced before we had the responsible contractor legislation. So when the current county exec came into office, uh, I had said to him, that I have a real concern about this legislation, and uh, I plan to change it, and I had crafted uh, legislation to bring it before council. Not so certain if I would get it adopted, but I had to bring some attention to this issue and I was going to argue it. The current county executive agreed with me and asked me to hold up until we could actually do some research and do a study. And as a consequence, we did the study, which was the smart thing to do, and we recognized um, the real numbers told us that before this legislation, where we were in terms of minority contracting, in terms of local contractors, and how they had shifted. And in certain trades, we didn't have the same local businesses even coming to Newcastle County anymore to bid on jobs. Jobs such as roofers, um, there is no roofing apprenticeship in, in in the state of Delaware. So, as a consequence, all of the roofing that we had done on every single building had to go to someone out of state. There are no glazers in Delaware where there is an apprentice program. And then certain other projects, for instance, in Rockwood Park, uh, where we had historical type of structures there, there was no one in Delaware, that we can get to make these repairs because there was no the requirement of this responsible contractor was that you had to have hire someone who was actively engaged in an apprentice program, and it's nothing at all wrong with the apprentice program when it's used for the purpose of training the workforce, but when it's used as an impediment mm-hmm. to provide for opportunity, then that's where the rub is. So, and you have to make compromise, but as a result of that, we did change that law. Uh, fought very hard to change that law. Uh, Already we've seen uh, the uptick in local contracts going to local businesses. We've seen the amount of money that we've saved so far, and we recognize now we're not having to go out to rebid. So all in all, um, it was a good thing to amend the legislation. But at the same time, uh, there are are people with other points of view, primarily uh, the folk with the other point of view was the building trades. So they dubbed me as the enemy of the building trade. So naturally, like it was when I was, you know, doing the things with South Africa, you know, I became, you know, something that a lot of people didn't agree with. Well, the building trades uh, disagree with me. And they decided, well, you know, we're going to get this guy out of office. So that's the other side of, of so many things that it may make sense to me or to folk who think like me or see these issues the way I see them, but there's always another side where folk are going to fight you to deny you and um, to the extent that they will even try to get you out of office. So mm-hmm. similar thing happened uh, when I was dealing with affordable housing issues uh, in Newcastle County. So the Newcastle County police um, actually escorted me out of a church meeting. The, ch- the, ch- the meeting was being held at a church on Vance-, Vance Neck Road here in Newcastle County. That was not that long ago. So uh, there's still pushback, and don't kid yourself if you think that everyone, you know, is, is all open and they're inclusive and so forth. That's just not the case. Mm-hmm. And when you start dealing with issues like affordable housing, then folk get ahead of you and they change the narrative, and they, in a lot of cases, they, they actually start putting out misinformation in terms of what you're really trying to achieve, and you have to overcome that. And then folk look at you as if somehow you were going to interfere with their way of living. Uh, You're going to bring those people into their neighborhoods. And so to a large extent, you're still dealing with a lot of conservative thoughts on a lot of issues uh, that I see uh, that need to happen. And so oftentimes it's very difficult to get support because of the outside political forces. Uh, Back in the 80s, it was the political bosses who did not want to change Delaware from a caucus state because it was encroaching on their power. A few years later, Delaware consequently became a primary state that we have now, and everybody just you know assumed that it's always been that way. That sure. was not the case not too long ago. Same thing with inclusionary zoning, where uh, folk now are becoming more comfortable with it because they have no choice. I was able to make it the law. So Newcastle County, now I'm very proud of where we are, as it relates to affordable housing. I can say that in Newcastle County, Delaware, we have some of the most progressive affordable housing codes in anybody in this region, uh, from inclusionary zoning, which is mandatory. We don't give up anything for it. We don't give up any density. It's just a matter of this is going to happen in Newcastle County. If you're going to come to Newcastle County and you're going to be granted a rezoning for residential you're going to automatically provide 20 percent of those units for affordability for moderate income people. Now these are not low-income people, moderate income people are earning between 65 and 85 percent of the annual median income here in Newcastle County, Delaware. So when you're addressing moderate income people, you're also leaving out low-income people. Sure. So how do you address that? Mm-hmm. So also in Newcastle County, in addition to the inclusionary zoning that requires the 20 percent for the population I just mentioned, in Newcastle County, if you get a rezoning for residential, you're also going to pay into a housing trust fund, seven dollars for every thousand dollars that you build. That housing trust fund today stands at 1.6 million dollars. So right now, what we're doing in Newcastle County, uh, we're putting together again a group of people that we're going to have to advise us and help us in how we're going to address uh, certain populations, uh, senior citizens, veterans, reentry uh folk who are coming out of prison to provide uh, opportunities for that population that we are missing. And the only funds that we're spending so far as most jurisdictions uh, for that population are federal dollars. So. Federal dollars are never enough, so when you run out, it just says, okay, we're going to open this list up again another four years, uh, you know, go somewhere until, you know, 2022. So with these dollars, it enables us to now address the population that I think are most needed here in Newcastle County. So we can't govern and at the same time feel good about ourselves when we know we're leaving people behind, when we know we can do policy to help those people and... I'm of the belief, as long as I've been around, that uh, government is not going to solve, ever going to solve all of our problems. Uh, Government just simply does not have all the resources to solve all of our problems. So, at the same time, where the government is doing everything that it should be doing, if I have anything to do with it, at the same time, it also requires everybody to do that everything they can do. So, people have have to have some self-analysis and not to become dependent on government. So that's just the real world we live in. And when folks just feel that, well, the government should do this, the government should do that. The government also has limited resources. The one thing you learn is that uh, when we do these um, community events or we go around and talk about Newcastle County government and we need money to do this and so forth, we call them listening sessions. Uh, the fact of the matter is, um, every listening session you go to, what you're going to realize is that everybody at every listening session, they want uh, more police, they want more libraries, they want more parks, and they want less tax.
1: Yeah, right. And how do you so, do that? Uh,
0: that's a very good question. Yeah. <laughs> so, I
1: remember uh, when, the, when the county executive was pitching the budget, and, and I, I think we had 20-plus of those. I went to maybe half a dozen of them, mm-hmm. and they were all the same. You know, you'd, you'd come through and say, well, here's, here's the plan, and here's where we've already cut some stuff, and if we're not going to raise taxes, then we need to cut this, 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 and this. And, and I think there was one meeting, and I think it was in Hocasson. The guy was like, well, of course you just cl- just close the libraries and the parks. And the whole room was like, how dare you? <laughs> how dare you suggest such a thing? And, because that's it, right? Yeah. But then you'd say, well, okay, well, how big a tax increase is big enough to, yeah. to, co- to cover this stuff? and of course nobody will n- none no just right. make it just make it work <laughs> just make magic happen and of course math doesn't work that way so yeah i totally totally understand yeah. what you're saying because i've i've been to enough of those yeah. meetings to hear it
0: you <laughs> well, know that's the public we deal with and and oftentimes the public feels that well you know we can we can cut something else or we don't deserve and somehow too many people in the public feel that people who work in government somehow are immune, immune to the same pressures of life that they are, you know the same um they go to the same grocery store, they need the same insurances, they need the same um you know challenges for homes and safety and so forth, and somehow people just think, well, you know the gov- government workers are just people who just they don't need raises they yeah <laughs> yeah uh that's very unfortunate, but you know government you know government workers or you know they're neighbors, they're part of the fabric of the community, they just work for the government, and in most cases. They're working for far less than um, their, um, their counterparts in, in, in the um, private sector.
1: Sure. Well, and, and I think, you know, to that point, too, I think a lot of people, at least on the national scene, you know, they look at career politicians, right? right people who right. get elected to office and they just want to stay in office yeah. and they'll do anything to keep that job. But you would kind of be considered a career politician because you've been in it so long.
0: Oh, beyond a doubt, yeah, But yeah, you yeah.
1: can't make a living on a county councilman's salary, right? <laughs> like, it's it's a it's yeah. like a part-time job. Yeah. So I guess give people a sense of, like, why why do that? Why take a little bit of money to deal with all of the people that are always mad about everything all the time, no matter what you do? I mean, why, why stay in it this long?
0: Well... First of all, you, you have to want to do it. I mean, campaigns are not easy. I think everybody's going to tell you that. Uh, you you got to want to do it. And as I said earlier, people run for public office for a lot of different reasons. Uh, I think um, the, the most uh, valid reason um, to run for public office is to lift people up, to help people. And if you look at my record, you'll see where I've spent all of my energy. So as long as there's an issue and I feel that I can do something about it, uh, that's what incentivizes me. And as I I mentioned, some of the things I've been involved with, especially housing, um, and I feel that as long as there are families in Newcastle County that deserve to own a home and I can help them own that home, I feel that, you know, I'm going to continue to do that for those families. Uh, I know that I I mentioned the population of low-income people. I also mentioned that there's $1.6 million in a trust fund that's designated for that population that I'm responsible for putting there, and I feel that I have to make certain that that money is going to go to that population. Uh, I know that there are a lot of my colleagues, well-intended, would prefer that money to go someplace else, but uh, I think they all know at this point in time that that money was designated for this population, and uh, I'm going to do everything that I can to make certain that it serves that population in a priority. So, the idea that you can continue to d- address needs that are there that we all see uh, is uh, its what motivates me. That's that's my incentive. And when I see that um, these things are being accomplished, when I first came to uh, the county council, there were people in Newcastle County with bumper stickers on. And the bumper sticker said, fund Newcastle County libraries. Uh, wow. I, w- I was going to work at the... DuPont Experimental Station, and I would see, especially going to work, leaving work, these bumper stickers fund Newcastle County libraries. And I saw that, and I just got elected to this county council. Well, you know, it's not a bad idea. Uh, And since that time, we have built or renovated 11 libraries in Newcastle County two additional libraries in the city of Wilmington. We just got done with a $34 million library on last year on Route 9. We just announced a $24 million library down in Middletown. So uh, when I came on County Council, I was part of the group. We put together the library master plan as a result of those bumper stickers. But not only did we put together the plan, the plan didn't go and sit on a shelf somewhere. We're actually building these libraries. So when that happens, you recognize that uh, you're part of some positive momentum. And when you feel that way about it, in my case, it's just, you know, you're making a contribution and, and you're enjoying what you're doing. And so I, I see no real reason to say, okay, you know, I'm done with that. Uh-huh. It's, it's not like, you know, there's some great pressure on me to be here, but there's no great pressure on me to leave here. Uh, And the voters sort of, you know, they got their own way of (laughs) dealing with these term limits. So (laughs) when it's all said and done, uh, you may, there's an awful lot of people who would like to have long political careers and the public they serve decides, you know, decides otherwise. I'm just very grateful to have this opportunity and it is an honor to serve. And I certainly don't take it for granted, um, you know, that I have this opportunity and I have a lot of people to thank. And, uh, you know, folk that volunteer for my campaign, they, they work very hard. They work as hard as I do. And it's just a handful of people. It's not like I got an army of folk that are, you know, out here <laughs> that concerned about whether I win or lose. But at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's the voters. And I think the um, last election proved that out for us, and we're still very grateful.
1: You mentioned when you were in the Army, you served in, in Korea. So you, you really have this, like, lifetime of service. You served in the military, and you're serving— in an elected uh, capacity, do you do you feel kind of a like a duty-bound thing? Like this is a, I mean, it is a job for you, but do you feel like you have a responsibility to do it? Because it seems, it just seems like that's been your life.
0: Well, absolutely. I, I think that um, it becomes a part of your life if you're sincere. And I still think that where you come from has a lot to do with it as well. And I mentioned, you know, coming from, you know, Palm Beach County, Florida, uh, and growing up under the legal Jim Crow system there, um, for me it was a driver, and you know, I, I knew as a very young person if I could ever help people, that's what I would do, and when I was given the opportunity uh, to do it and recognize that I can make some change, uh, when, uh, when I was in New York City, I invited there by um, the United Nations, um, the feeling that, that overcame me uh, for being in New York and from where I came from, Uh, and being there for that purpose uh, was pretty overwhelming. And I was only invited there because I ended up being the second person in this country uh, to pass legislation dealing with the apartheid issue in uh, South Africa. So from whence I came and to be there, all of that just came back to me like a flashback. And just recently, um, well, not so recently, probably about five years ago now, I was watching CNN and uh they were covering the, New- the United Nations and uh, there was a guy sitting there in you know New, New United Nations chairs and and the and the um the name tag says uh Mr uh Dumasana Kamala I met him during the um he was part of the um, um the African movement that was part of the divestiture movement so mm-hmm. during that time some of the people that I met Dumasani Kamala was the guy's name it just really, I mean, I was just so full of joy when I saw him there and knowing that, you know, I had, you know, had meetings with him in Boston, had meetings with him in New York, dealing with this whole divestiture issue. So you become part of a family of people who have uh, shared ideals about making this world a better place. And just three weeks ago, I was in the city of Baltimore, and uh, I was with a friend of mine, um, and we were driving through Baltimore, and he was driving, and we drove from one end of Baltimore to the other, um, and certain neighborhoods in Baltimore brings it to light, and I, I said to him, um, we were a certain section of Baltimore, and there were young men standing on a corner about um, four or five deep, just standing on the corner. This friend of mine who was driving had actually lived in Baltimore for a while. He had worked down there and lived there. So he knew the city. And I said to him, um, this is just a little depressing, uh, but it's a microcosm of what's going on in urban America, not just here in Baltimore, but all over this country. Uh, If you were to go to Los Angeles, you would see the same thing. If you were to go to Chicago, you'd see the same thing. So it's all over the place. And I also know that, you know, local government is not going to be able to fix this uh... there's just not the resources there uh... and you know that and you see that and it makes you it drives you you know what can i do the little bit i can do and you know i'm from a, obviously a very small town wilmington delaware uh... but even as small as wilmington is it's not at the same scale it is, as it is in los angeles or baltimore or some of the other larger cities Uh, but it's still enough to keep all of us engaged uh, to try to bring about some equity here. And, you know, it's not just on the issues that, you know, I've been so passionate about, uh, but I do know that housing is what has always gotten the middle class into uh, mainstream America. It's gotten uh, low-income people into mainstream America. It's how people begin to build their wealth is through ownership. So when people are able to own a home, uh, the equity is going to grow in that home, and that's when people are going to be allowed to then use that equity in that home to send their children off to school, to use that equity to open a business, uh, to use that equity to have um, comfortable retirement. Without that, you get into your golden years, and what do you really have? So there's so many people who have been denied uh, access to home ownership. Uh, there are a lot of people in this country today are still being denied uh, access to home ownership. There's still a lot of people in this country today who are still being denied access to a fair mortgage. Um, so you have people of color in particular uh, who are behind the eight ball because they could not get uh, guaranteed mortgages uh, until uh, President Kennedy came along. So all of this has left uh, so many people behind that are still playing catch-up. And some folk just didn't have the fortitude uh, to continue to go against what they saw as unconquerable odds. And folk uh, just decided, well, you know, let me find another way. Uh, The system isn't fair. And quite frankly, life isn't fair. But, um, you know, different people is going to take different approaches uh, to address their challenges. Uh, I'm just very grateful that as... Challenging as it may have been to grow up in the South, I can also say that there's more people who grew up in the same situation that I did that are doing exceedingly well. So you can't use that as a crutch, but it's a reminder uh, to say that, well, you know, you got to recognize things are changing. you also got to recognize that this is America. So, you know, I spent, you know, two hardship tours uh, in South Korea, so I have no illusions about trying to be someplace else other than here. Uh, With all of our challenges, I still think that, you know, this is the best country on earth. So uh, I'm going to make the best of where I am, uh, you know, and and try to make certain that I'm able to help someone else make the best of where they are in this country. And no matter where you are, you want to make the best of that. I mean, that's that's the whole idea. I think those are the principles that Dr. King talked about, you know, making the best of your situation, uh, not feeling sorry for yourself, but doing a self-analysis to make certain that you are putting your best foot forward. You're not dependent on the government, but the government should do everything that it can not to put impediments in your path. When I grew up, the government was doing just the opposite. The the government was deliberately putting impediments in your path, impediments uh, toward education, impediments toward housing, impediments toward employment, the very basic tenets uh, that help people to succeed The government itself was putting these impediments in the way of a class of people. So where I am today, I'm blessed because I feel that to the extent that I can, I'm going to work to remove those impediments. So, And when I do that, sometimes, almost all times, uh, there's going to be a challenge. Affordable housing in Newcastle County, uh, where we are today, from where we were, I can tell you, we've come a very long way. I feel real good about where we are. But it wasn't easy. Um, So... People that are well intended would tell you they're all for affordable housing. There's very few people you're going to meet, very few politicians you're going to meet who are not going to claim that you know they want to do something about affordable housing.
1: Well, yeah, that's politically advantageous right you exactly. cer- You certainly right. don't want to claim to be for the opposite of affordable housing exactly. no I want, un- I want no one to <laughs> right. have a house but
0: but, it- but if you do if you do the homework and you try to figure out then what have you done about affordable housing? If you, if you watch the debates about affordable housing and say, well, why didn't you or why weren't you or why didn't you co-sign? Uh, so when I passed the uh, what we call accessory dwelling unit legislation in Newcastle County uh, back in 2008, uh, there were folk coming from Brandon 100 saying that, well, you know, this is the end of our neighborhoods the way we know it. Uh, these shacks are going to ne- go next to these $400,000 homes. Well, <laughs> we put a limit on the amount of ADUs we call them but they they were known as um mother-in-law suites father those kind of things so anyway it allowed for other options for folk who are aging to age you know in the place sure and so just a year and a half ago guess what happened to that legislation well we had uh filled a quota that we put in place to make people feel good about this legislation we're not going to you know overrule overrun your your neighborhood with these accessory dwelling units now we had folk coming to the county, well, why can't you lift this quota? Because this is a great thing. We wanna have more accessory drilling units. Uh, I want my mom to stay in this house. I want my parents to so people fought so hard against mm-hmm. and up people coming to us lobbying to remove this quota so that we can have more accessory drilling units in Newcastle County. So sure. sometimes it takes people their experience to to catch up with where you may be, and you have to allow that to happen. So I think that's what we're going to see going forward uh, with our inclusionary zoning. I think we're going to see richer neighborhoods. I think what you're seeing now, the trend is uh, for more mixed use uh, in terms of what we build on these sites in Newcastle County. And I think you're going to see more mixed uh, diversity, uh, not just racial diversity, but uh, in terms of incomes, uh, in terms of um, ages and, and all these other kind of things that enriches communities. The same as you see on the county council. I think the county council is as good as, as, it, as it is because we have uh, people from, you know, the different backgrounds, from lawyers to farmers to you name it. Uh, we, we represent, you know, the people um, that make up this, uh, this county. So it's all just not people coming from the same place or even thinking the same. So it has to be a diversity of thought as well.
1: I know, you know, the Route 9 corridor is a big focus for affordable Mm -hmm. housing, for redevelopment. I would imagine, you know, probably South Bridge too in the city. You know, there's been a lot of work that seems to be going on there on the city side. Uh, What do you see as the future for those areas out of these initiatives?
0: What I see happening now is the focus being in the right place. I think there is momentum. Uh, If you look at the Route 9 corridor uh, with the so-called... stabilization funds that we've placed there, and the majority of our funds in Newcastle County has gone to that corridor. Uh, we have to give the, uh, the, the new uh, Library Innovation Center uh, more time to be uh, more impactful in that community, which I think it will be. Uh, I think what's going on in South Bridge, we now have a bridge that's going to be opening up to go over to the South Bridge community. Uh, also, you see the '76's Field House there. Part of that was county land. Uh, we allowed that annexation to take place uh, so the city could go forward with building that facility, which is going to not only help uh, South Bridge, of course, because it is essentially in South Bridge, but it's going to help this entire county. So when you look at the other initiative that the city is doing over in South Bridge area where you have Eden Park with a major investment going on there. Then you have uh, on the other side of town uh, where Sally's in the city now have a partnership to uh, renovate uh, the Baynett Stadium. So uh, on the east side of Wilmington, uh, what you have now is um, um, a purpose-built community where investors are coming out. They have examples throughout the country. Well, not that many of them, but Wilmington is the next city in the threshold to take advantage of what's called purpose-built communities. Once that happens, and then you have now the port being uh, renovated and it's going to expand up to Ex- more. So all of these activities I see as very positive momentum that's going to uplift the potential is there to just uplift everybody and make this a much better place. Because then with the things I just mentioned, it's going to mean jobs, which grows all of this, and that's going to mean income. So it's going to make mean that folk can have a decent quality of life. Uh, neighborhoods will look better when there is economics in neighborhoods. What happens in neighborhoods, as I mentioned earlier, when when you have a situation where the people in the neighborhood really don't want to live there, but they can't leave. People that are not in the neighborhood don't want to move in. So there is no economy in that neighborhood. So it's a real challenge for any jurisdiction to try to artificially place the economy in a, in a place where nobody wants to be. So it takes a lot of thinking and thoughtful kinds of uh, programming to make certain that happens because on the, other, on the other side of that, folk are saying, well, now you're just trying to run off out of our neighborhood. And that's one of the challenges that the city is dealing with now because they want to address the issue of abandoned and, and vacant properties, sure. and there's a concern with city officials, well, we can't do this on the backs of some senior citizens who may not be able to maintain their properties, so how do you balance that? Now, in the county, we, we, we have a similar situation with, with um, abandoned properties, vacant properties, and I served on that task force, and now we've done the necessary legislation. We've just been in the process of this now. we adopted about three months ago, and it's working. But you have, to, you have to approach these things so that you don't have any unintended consequences and you don't end up uh, with any casualties uh, because you're trying to do a good thing and trying to do this good thing, you've harmed more people than, you know.
1: Yeah, you want to improve a neighborhood, but you don't want to kick off gentrification, right? You exactly, want to force people right, out. right.
0: So that's, that's, that's the balance you have to look at when you're trying to do these great things is that you've thought it through to make certain that, uh, you know, these unintended consequences do not occur. I mean, they do occur, but you want to make certain that if that happens, that you're in a position where you can make some amendments or you can adjust your actions, on those kinds of things.
1: Um, I think, you know, just kind of going back to the beginning, you know, I was thinking about, you know, Joe Biden, he was elected to county council in, what, 1970? And Um, then 72. Something like that. Um, Yeah. And then 72 ran for the Senate. Right. You've always been at the local level. Have you ever thought about higher office, like going Senate, House, governorship?
0: Well, no. um, You know, I've had some encouragement from some of my staunch supporters. I'm certainly most politicians. They tell, you know, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? But the fact of the matter is, um, if you look at where we are uh, in in Delaware, we, we get one person in Congress. And it's, it's a tall order, uh, and, you know, in, in some other jurisdictions, that may, they, that may have been more attractive to me. Um, when I go down to Washington, uh, which I've been doing now for a number of years, and um, I have an opportunity to attend, you know, the workshops and brain threats in D.C. Uh, and meet people from other jurisdictions and so forth, where some of my ideas come from, quite honestly, uh, I feel that I belong, but I'm, I'm happy in Delaware. I'm happy on the county council uh, you know I've had some encouragement to to seek an office in, in the Delaware General Assembly. But quite frankly, I feel that the County council fits me. I think i'm I'm just as impactful. Uh, and I think the notion—I mean, even on the county council, even for our districts, we represent more people. on The county council districts are larger than the state senate districts. Sure. So, I mean, most folks don't realize that uh, because when you say state senator, I guess it has a certain type of—you uh, know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, I, you know, I'm—I'm pretty—I'm pretty satisfied with uh, my role uh, in, in county government. I mean, I, I really don't—I don't have any. I'm not driven by any kind of an ego or false sense. Of who I am, uh, any of those kind of notions are trying to be. Uh, and the County Council, as you mentioned, um, Vice, President Joe, Vice President Joe Biden came from the um, County Council. Um, Senator Chris Coons came from the County Council. Senator Chris Coons and I served together. Uh, you know, he's, he's a great guy. We, we talk all the time, and I'm very proud of him. Uh, I mean, I've, I'm in D.C., and you to stop by and chat with him or he invites me to let me so- know some things that are going on. So I've had some real good exposure uh, just from being on the county council. When I go to D.C. and uh, hang out with some of the folk down there in the Congress, and I know a few of the people, you know, in Congress, Marcia Fudge, uh, who's a very good friend of mine, uh, congresswoman out of uh, Ohio, uh, and uh, so I've known her for years before she even went to Congress. So... There's some folk down there that I I do know and I have some relationship with. Uh, A very good friend of mine uh, is is now um, the um, advisor to the mayor of D.C. Um, So it's not like I'm in some vacuum just because (laughs) I'm in Delaware. (laughs) But, um, no, I still have a lot of, um, you know, communications and so forth to know what's going on, but I I allow myself to do that because I I seek the exposure. So...
1: So so we won't see you on the presidential ticket in 2020. You're not. <laughs> you're not throwing your hat in the ring. I'm not going to commit. <laughs> I like that. Keep keep your options yeah, open. Yeah.
0: Right. Exactly.
1: Well, uh, Councilman, I really appreciate you joining us. Fantastic career of service and the work that you've done. Uh, is there anything else you want to add before we end?
0: No. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity.
1: Awesome. All right. Well, thank, thank you very much.
0: Thank you, buddy.
1: Sam, hello. We talked about a lot of stuff in this podcast episode. There were many facts discussed and many things that
2: people may not uh, be familiar with. What have you got for us? Well, one of the one of the first things I wanted to kind of get into is, you know, someone who's lived around Delaware my whole life. I, I uh, hadn't really heard much about the Wilmington riots, mm-hmm. which. Uh, he had mentioned uh, during this podcast. So I, I kind of went into some, some research there, wanted, wanted to see what that was all about. So um, April 9th to 10th, 1968, uh, this is right after the uh, assassination of Martin, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. So tensions are high across the United States. And I would assume a lot of young people don't know that Wilmington had such high tensions. But going back, it, it's, it's amazing to see that there was National Guard brought in, to pr- protect the city, <laughs> I guess, in quotes. Yeah, the, the, longest, <laughs> the longest domestic occupation. Yes, that's what I was getting Since, to. what, the Civil War? Since the Civil War. Yeah. It lasted nine months until um, Governor uh, Charles Terry was uh, voted out of office uh, mm-hmm. during the next election. Uh, well, I guess he was beaten. But... Um, but yeah, that, that, was, that was a huge issue. And then within an hour of the uh, uh, election results, they overturned the National Guard taking over the city.
1: Yeah, Governor Russell Peterson, who the wildlife refuge is named after in the city, his first act uh, after being sworn in was to remove the National Guard from the city. And a lot of people feel like Terry only kept them there that long as a political ploy
2: during that campaign. A lot of the quotes from the, the politicians at the time who were president, because it there it was it was fairly unanimous among other politicians around Delaware that this was like we needed to stop this mm. and it was kind of like the end of the governor's era there they were all saying that like who are you making it safer for like what's your what's really your end game
1: mm. here yeah that's that's crazy <laughs> yeah actually there's a lot so when i used to work at the news journal we did we did a lot of stories on the riots and uh kind of the the things that led up to the riots and the things that came out of the riots and and you know, that was one of the reasons I brought up I-95, because we really kind of looked at, you know, in, in the early 60s when they were routing 95, uh, they, they could have gone around Wilmington, where they really originally weren't going to come through Delaware at all. It was going to go closer to the, the actual path of Route 1. And there was a lot of push to bring it into Delaware, because obviously if you're going to bring this major highway, that people are going to skip your state altogether, and that's not good. But they didn't necessarily need to run it through the middle of Wilmington and back then it really kind of spoke to how how certain people in society didn't have a voice because they routed it through the middle of the city and literally destroyed hundreds of homes to do it i mean that where where the highway now runs if you you know you're on 95 in wilmington you look to the right or the left there's homes on either side of the, the highway and you're currently driving where homes used to stand i mean they just went in and bulldozed them and they're gone so you especially in West Center City, you had a neighborhood that was really split in half uh, by this highway and you couldn't walk out your door anymore and see your neighbor because your neighbor was like two city blocks or a full Mm -hmm. city block uh, divided by this now giant ravine of cars. A lot of people kind of look at that as like the start of the breakdown, right? And you you created this problem that allowed the riot to get bigger than it might might not have been otherwise. Mm now whether it did or not who knows yeah
2: and that's why I think you know looking back on on all this history around Wilmington and, and bringing it back to Councilman Hollins is it's important for figures like him to step up and make a change because things like he was talking about with inclusionary zoning is so important for residents to have affordable housings where they live instead of getting priced out of their own neighborhoods I mean you know, gentrification is, is, a, is a huge topic in, in a lot of cities now. And, and, uh, actually my, um, uh, my brother got married and, 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 they're, they live in, in a, you know, gentrified area in Philadelphia and just visiting them, you can like, they, they bought their house at a price that no other house would have ever been. They're still condemned houses right next to their, their house. Sure, and sure. It, it's, it's crazy to see that, that, you know, or I guess it's kind of sad to see that, that some people are getting priced out of their own areas and they have nowhere to go. So you obviously want the neighborhood to get better because who
1: doesn't? Like, why would you yeah. want the neighborhood to stay bad? Why would you want the homes to stay boarded up? But at the same time, you don't want to do that at the expense of the people who live mm-hmm. there, who may be renting there because, you know, they that that's just what they can afford to do. Yeah. And then the rent, you know, goes up and prices them out. So, you know, how do you do that, right? How do you fix a neighborhood and make it nice, but not then not explode property values to the point that people can't afford the property tax or, or or whatever to live there. You know, this this mandating that any new construction X amount has to be set aside for affordable housing or people be- so below a certain income threshold or whatever so they can stay there makes a lot of sense. It's a really smart way that um, you can combat that. And I think that was really, you know, important what he was talking to about. You know, he sees the role of government as being this kind of this force to equalize or protect or, you know, work to make sure that people aren't forgotten so that if they're, you know, in these situations that government's not making it worse by allowing these things to go forward. They're
2: they're working to ensure that they're not left, you know, without a, a way to stay where they live. Mm-hmm. It even, you know, even says on the little blurb about uh, Councilman Hollins that he, one of the things that, and I know he talked about this a little bit in the podcast, is that he took... He's making sure that the people in the rental market are working towards home ownership because mm-hmm. owning the land and owning the house is way more important than just being there and paying, you know, a landlord or sure. something like that. So, yeah. Um,
1: I mean, there's a big thing, you know, like as as millennials, right? Let's let's just remind everyone that we're the worst generation right. ever. I'm uh, even younger, so it's even. Yeah, more. <laughs> you're you're a, a late stage millennial, and I'm an early stage millennial or whatever. I don't know how that works, but anyway, <laughs> yeah, if you. I mean, it's a big thing for our generation, too, because pay is not moving up and we have the most college debt. And so it, someone in our generation trying to buy a home, it's tough mm-hmm. because you're going to most people start out renting. Right. Most people don't go from college yeah. and then buy a house. You start out having to rent a place. Well, that money isn't doing anything for you. Right. If you're renting a house, that money's going to the landlord and the, and, and the landlord's either using it to pay a mortgage on the property or just using it to maintain the property. But you're not getting anything out of that when your lease is up. When your lease is up, you're gone. You might get yep. your deposit back, and that's it. If you own a home, you might be paying very similarly. I know when we, we first moved to Delaware, our first apartment and then our first mortgage payment were within $200 of each other. So you might be paying something very similar to that, but at least then when you sell the home, assuming the market doesn't absolutely crash like it did in 2008, Eight. that whole that whole area. Yeah, yeah. yeah, as long as you... Um, you know, you don't experience a situation like that. In theory, you know, that money that you've been paying, you're going to get back when you sell it. And you're going to lose a little bit to transfer taxes and whatever, depending on how long you're in the home. I mean, that's just... Yeah, but, but in theory, the longer you're in it, you'll make that money up because the value of the home will go up. So if you can get a person who has been a career renter to the point of home ownership, that money that they're shelling out every month, it, they're eventually going to get it back. They're, they're retaining a value at the end of it, it there's, there's, a, there's a physical thing that you own, that you have, that you're not just throwing money away to. And then, you know, if you want to do other things, you can borrow against the value of that thing in, in a home equity loan, or you can make that thing better and grow the value out of it. So, yeah, I mean, like, the whole American dream thing around owning a home, um, you know, that being such an integral part of it, is all because, you know, it, it's a protected
2: value, it's a protected asset, or at least it should be.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. One of the other topics I thought was uh, really interesting about Councilman Hollins is his work with uh, South Africa Mm. and the apartheid. Uh, So I I was just looking back on history of that because I wasn't. I mean, I I had known, you know, I know Nelson Mandela, and I, you know, I'd heard about, you know, it's it was a racial divide. That's about, you know, that for my U.S. or my world history class in high school. Yes, uh, that's about all I retain. But I thought, I thought it was really interesting that Councilman Hollins was so he was he was the second he was the second elected official, Elected official, sorry, yes, um, to get on board with this act and get try to get this moving and have the U.S. put trade uh, taxes and uh, tariffs on South Africa. So they kind of like got the message that the rest of the world was like, this is not okay. Yeah, it's essentially sanctioning South Africa yeah. to influence the political process there. Yeah. So I, I I thought this was like a really interesting thing that that Councilman Hollins had saw from from afar, and I know he talked about Jesse Jackson's presidential campaign, and that was one of kind of one of the points in in the campaign that Jesse Jackson was was going for, and I think Councilman Hollins was a huge influence for that to be a uh, kind of a sticking point for him. So um, so yeah, I, I just thought I thought it was really interesting that that the apartheid went up till 1991, mm. which is crazy to think because less than 30 years. I th- I think it's so important for people like Hans who are were in who actually firsthand dealt with dealt with racism to the like highest degree need to be in positions of power to give that voice to the minority and people who are still struggling today. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely. Uh, that that uh, he, he's he's I mean if you just listen to the podcast he he had uh, a a lot to say and and you can tell that he's very thoughtful has 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 seen a lot of extremes.
1: Here's a person who is right now serving on our county council who remembers what it was like to not be able to drink out of a water fountain because of the color of his skin. Mm-hmm. That, that is fresh. Like that still yeah. has, an, and that has an impact on anyone who has, you know, a direct relationship to to that individual because you're, I mean, obviously shaped by, the experiences of the people who raised you, you know, like you can't, it, it, none of it exists in a vacuum. This wasn't some time ago in black and white pictures. Yeah. This, this is very tangible still. Yeah. And the effects of it are still seen. And that's why we need to have, you know, housing programs that focus on discrimination and focus on low income individuals who are still trying to play catch up. Yeah. Anyway, time to wrap this up. Uh, thank you for listening to this episode of pod County. Uh, We appreciate it. I'm hoping if you've listened to this episode, it means you listened to our first episode with Ken Bolden, who was a great guest as well. Uh, We've got more great guests coming up in the future, and uh, we hope you'll come back and listen up. Sam, anything? I have nothing to add. All right, good.